Finding meaning in suffering. That's a tough one. It's a very Buddhist idea that life is suffering and that we are not supposed to run away from suffering, but instead lean into that suffering and find salvation through that experience. In the chapter, The Sun, we get to experience Siddhartha as a suffering father, a father who tries to connect with his son whom he has not known because he did not know about him until Kamala came and then unfortunately passed away. He kept his son in this chapter, tried to hold on to him, but the son did not want to stay. He gave him chores to do, but the son would only reject the teaching that Siddhartha had to give. It was painful. Siddhartha was suffering. Oh yes, he too is called upon. He too is of the eternal life. This is Vasudeva talking back to Siddhartha. Why is my son not wanting to listen to me, I who have suffered so much and can help him prevent his own suffering. And here we say, but do we, you and me, Vasudeva again talking to Siddhartha, know what he is called upon to do, what path to take, what actions to perform, what pain to endure? An important lesson not only for Siddhartha, but I believe for all of us. Who are we to tell anyone in this world what to do? We may mean well, yes. It may have worked for us, sure. And we may even offer some wisdom, some guidance, of course. But should we force them? Should we contain them? Should we limit their path? Not according to the story. According to Vasudeva's wisdom, it is important that Siddhartha Jr. makes his own mistakes. He even points out to Siddhartha Sr., where would you be without having gone to the Samanas, without having learned and ultimately rejected the teaching of Gautama without having suffered through the experience of materialism being, becoming attached and everything he learned in the city, where would you be now without that experience? His son needs to experience that for himself as well. Don't you see what your son is trying to tell you? Don't you see that he doesn't want to be followed? How often have we followed someone, either in the physical or even in mind, because we had a hard time to let go? That's the suffering of attachment. When we have a hard time to let go, we suffer because we are attached. And of course, as a parent, as a mom, as a dad, there is a natural attachment to the children for most of us. Vice versa, children to parents, families in general, children even, attachment to a building, right? We are going to be asked very soon to step out of this building 
and to never return. Not as unity for worth. There may be some pain, there may be some suffering, and yet it's our path that we chose to go. Nevertheless, he ran without stopping. This is now Siddhartha Sr. running after his son because his son stole the ferry, crossed the river, and was running into the forest, going to the city. And Siddhartha went after him, no longer to save him, just to satisfy his, his desire. He learned a little bit. He doesn't want to save him anymore from the suffering. But he still wants to be with him. He still wants to know what's happening, just to perhaps to see him one more time. And he ran up to just outside of the city until he realized there was no point. And he returned to Vasudeva and continued his place as the upcoming ferryman, as we later get to know. It's a tough lesson here. And he, you can really feel in this chapter how Siddhartha is going through a lot. And I think most of us can somewhat relate to that. We can relate to the pain that it sometimes that we get when we have to let go of something. It could be as simple as leaving a house or even a cherished car because we can't fix it anymore or even something as an old book that we can no longer take with us. We get attached for all sorts of reasons. But life often gives us this lesson or this idea that attachments can, not always, be something that is holding us back. Here is where it connects to the Christian teachings. Jesus was actually very well-versed in non-attachment, but you have to read between the lines a little bit because he's not as open about these ideas of attachment, non-attachment, and suffering and pain as we see it in the story of Siddhartha. But there's a couple of stories that you can see that link into that. One is called the cross and self-denial. Jesus tells his disciples, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Remember, Jesus often, or once in a while, asks someone, if you want to follow me, you have to leave everything behind. You have to leave behind your families. You have to leave behind your riches. You have to leave behind everything, or you will not be able to follow. It sounds really harsh, right? And is that really what's asked of us to do today? Do we have, in order to become like Siddhartha, the Buddha, or like Jesus Christ, to become Christ-like or Buddha-like, do we really have to give up everything? Do we really have to walk away from our house and car and family? What do you think? Many shake, not, right? And... I want to check in with you, with yourself. I want you to do that. How much of that shaking of your head is because of your attachments 
and how much is because it's a realization that attachment is not just a material thing. It's happening in mind and it's happening in heart. And what Jesus is really saying here when we approach it from a more metaphysical perspective, in order for us to really understand the Christ self, who we truly are, in order for us to really tap into moksha, nirvana, enlightenment, awakening, in order for us to do that, we truly have to let go of everything and become the Christ self within. We have to bear the cross. The cross is a symbol of crucifixion, but also a symbol of letting go. And letting go is part of forgiveness, and forgiveness is ultimately what this whole chapter on the sun is about. Let me show you. There is a part, a passage in the Bible that's about forgiveness, and most of you probably have heard of that. When Peter came to Jesus and said, hey, how many times do I have to forgive? Is seven times enough? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. I tell you, you have to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to start counting and then we are done by 77, right? It's symbolic. It just means we have to forgive until we are done. But how does forgiveness link into non-attachment, you might ask? And Charles Fillmore in The Revealing Word, our co-founder, has a really important interpretation of what forgiveness really is in how it links to traditional Christianity and some of the other um, religions when it comes to letting go. He says that forgiveness is a process of giving up the false for the true. When you forgive yourself, you cease doing the things that you should not do. It is through forgiveness that true spiritual healing is accomplished. Forgiveness removes the errors of the mind and bodily harmony results in consonance with divine law. In order for us to be whole, we must forgive. Forgive is letting go. It's the letting go of the false for the true. Siddhartha had to let go of his son, not of his son as a human being, not the idea that his son was actually his son, but he had to let go of the idea that he had anything to teach his son and he had anything to offer him and he needed to let go of that whole idea and then embrace the truth that his son also deserves to have his own path. And that is probably one of the hardest things for any of us anywhere to do isn't it? Most religions fail at that, 100%. Because in many religions, you, the or, in order for you to belong means you have to accept a certain dogma or a certain idea. And unless you accept that dogma and that idea, you're not welcome in the community, right? Anyone experienced that before? Right? Probably some of us, most of us. And, but we're doing the same thing, too. 
with our friends and with our families. We have these little things where we put up these rules and expectations. It's sometimes very hard to let a friend be a little quirky or a little outside of the norm. We'll let them be a little bit as long as we can stretch like a rubber band. But if it's stretching too much, we're afraid the rubber band will break. And so we try then to control our friends and families so they fit rather than being completely free from attachment to even how they are and how they want to express themselves. Society is the same way, right? And we can't just go and say we need to get, we should get rid of everything, should get rid of all the rules. That would be chaotic, wouldn't it, if we did that? So there's some sensibility to having some framework or some idea that helps us live together, of course. But when it comes to our personal journey, it's a very important lesson to learn that we have more attachments than we often think we have. And in this chapter, Siddhartha gets to experience it through his son. The next chapter is probably the most important one in the whole book. It's a chapter on Om. In the US, you see Om spelled O-M, as it is in the book, but it's actually often spelled also A-U-M because it's the sound of three letters. A for creation, U for sustenance or sustaining, and M for destruction. A, U, M, right? So the way it's pronounced in Sanskrit is very simple. A, U, long, and then M, destruction, conclusion. And then we combine it as Om, right? That's what we did a couple of times. We chanted Om. But what we actually chant is the creation of the universe, the sustenance or sustaining maintenance of the universe, and the destruction of the universe all in one sim symbol, all in one sound. That's why the sound is so important in the Eastern philosophies. It, because it holds the three murti, the three primal gods, Brahma for A, for creation, Vishnu for U, for sustenance or maintenance, keeping the creation alive, and M, Shiva, destruction, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, all in that one word. Have you ever heard that? Hmm? So when you sing or chant Om, think of it, what you're doing is you're participating in creation in maintenance and destruction all at the same time. So at this point now, <clears throat> Siddhartha got really old. And Vasudeva even older than him. Vasudeva, his eyesight no longer is good, so he stopped doing the fairy duty. Siddhartha has taken over as the ferryman doing that duty. He's still suffering 
from the loss of his son. But we're now probably another 20 years later, and yet he still has that wound that does not blossom. Okay? For a long time, the wound continued to burn. That's the opening sentence in this chapter. That wound is important to understand. Because in this chapter, that wound is being released. And it's that release that truly gives Siddhartha his final enlightenment experience. And he is, be, he is freed. He frees himself from the endless cycle of suffering. When he ferried the travels, he start, travelers, he started to notice something. And maybe some of you have noticed that too. When we enter suffering once in a while, when we experience great loss, when we experience a change in our lives that causes us a lot of pain, have you ever noticed that you're a lot more compassionate to other people? Anyone? Right? Because all of a sudden, you're trying to reach out to others, and you're seeing other people also potentially going through the same thing. This is why in Zen Buddhism, the Tonglen practice is practiced so often, which is about leaning into the pain and then wishing the release of the pain for everyone else who suffers the same pain. It's a true meditation of surrender and release in the interest of the world, not in self-interest. Siddhartha notices here that all of a sudden he no, no longer judges people as the childlike people and the robbers and the people that he is ferrying across. He, he sees them no longer as alien. To him, he now understands them. He, he shares part of the life with them. He's resonating with them at the deeper level, even without knowing them very deeply. And at the very early, at the end, at the bottom of the slide, you see he is realizing that the worldly people were of equal rank to the wise men. Meaning he's finally realizing that even though he was a very well-studied person, he was raised as a Brahmin, the highest caste possible. He was living with the Samanas, learning a lot about asceticism and how to live with patience and with, with very little. He lived with the merchant, became rich. He did everything. He learned everything. And he's now learning from Vasudeva about the river and from the river. And now he's realizing that even though he's a very well-trained and wise man, those people that may have not studied even a fraction of what he did, they were all equal to him, pure oneness. It was nothing but the resonance of the soul, an ability, a secret art, to think every moment while living his life, the art of oneness, the thought of oneness, to be able to feel and inhale oneness. He's starting to realize that there's no separation between his experience and the other people. 
but he's also realizing something, and this is where the river comes back into play. He's going back to the wound that he has, that his son has not allowed him to be a father. And he's kind of complaining to the river about it. If you read the chapter, you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of like bitching, you know? Like, you know, like, you're giving me all this stuff, but why can't I have my son? And then the river is kind of telling me him, had his father not also suffered the same pain? Remember that in the very beginning, his father didn't want him to go, and yet Siddhartha was very clear, I am going to go. He didn't even go down to the river with his father and give him the blessing or the honor of blessing him one more time before he left. He did not even have the courtesy to that. He caused his father a lot of pain. And only now, probably 50, 60, 70 years later, I don't know how long, we don't know, he's now finally remembering that the pain that he is experiencing as a father to his son, he has caused in his father just the same. And it's this endless cycle of suffering that is being presented here to him. And not only that, the river starts laughing at him, right? The river starts laughing, but it's a laughter not of mockery. It's a different kind of laughter. It's a laughter that's compassionate, a laughter that someone has for someone who already knows that we're all a perfect expression of God. It's someone who has that clear realization within them, the river is, looking at someone who is suffering and laughs with them, not at them, not about them, but laughs because they're realizing you have this huge potential that you're failing to embrace and you're trying so hard to get away from. And guess what we believe in unity? Exactly that. We believe that within us, perfection is already realized 100%. That's a strong belief. Now again, we're not trying to give you a dogma that you have to take on and go with it. We just offer that idea and you take it on as you wish. But ultimately, we are believing that there is perfection within, just as Siddhartha is looking for that same perfection. And as long as we are suffering, as long as we are holding on to those attachments, we will not fully be able to realize that perfection. So it may seem. That's why I have to stick with this chapter. Tending towards despair and not less tending towards laughing. That's where Siddhartha is leaving the river to go to Vasudeva because he had this realization about something. He is despaired and is in pain, but he also wants to laugh with the river because he realizes that in that moment that the pain is not something to be escaped, but to be accepted for what it is to be accepted for the perfection of the creation, that for, for that he is responsible and that in which he partakes. He is part of that creation. 
But you haven't heard everything Vasudeva says. Vasudeva, as you remember throughout the story, whenever Siddhartha is running, you know, he's sitting by the river probably for weeks, and then he realizes something, time doesn't exist, thousands of voices, he runs to Vasudeva and says, I got it, I got it, I finally got it. And then Vasudeva says, yeah, listen a little bit more. Same thing here. But you haven't heard everything. But here's the difference. Let's listen more. Now Vasudeva sits down by the river with Siddhartha. Because Vasudeva knows that Siddhartha is really close. There's only one little thing that is holding him back. One thing that he needs to let go finally in order to realize true Atman for himself. The river saying with a voice of suffering, a longing, lamenting. The river which consisted of him and his loved ones and of all the people had ever seen. He's realizing all, everything that everyone he has ever met comes out of the river flowing into him. But the last one is what really brings the experience home. It's not just about him, not just about his family and his friends, not just about the people that he knows, but it's about everyone else as well. A thousand voices speak to him. Voices that he knows and voices that he does not know. I'm using the same picture here as I used before. I'm just cheating a little bit because I couldn't find a second picture. Now I'm just saying this is Siddhartha and Vasudeva. Before he was Siddhartha and Govinda, so just work with me, okay? So now it's Siddhartha and, and Vasudeva. And you can ask yourself, who actually has the holy shrine around him? Who do you think, at this point in time, is the one who has, is enlightened? Siddhartha or Vasudeva? Vasudeva, right? And that really blows the mind of many people because they go, seriously, someone who was enlightened before the Buddha? Of course, and if you understand any of the, the Eastern philosophies that's enshrined in their culture for thousands of years, that this is not just one person who is getting there. This is all of us. So it makes total sense that Vasudeva all along had the reality, the truth, and know who he truly was. And now Siddhartha is getting really close to this point. He was now nothing but a listener, completely empty, and he could no longer tell the many voices apart. They all belonged together. That's the point when Siddhartha shifts. He's no longer separating the voices. He's no longer trying to fight the voices, trying to figure out, is it my son, my father? Is it Vasudeva? Is it a friend? Is it Govinda? Is it Godama? Who are these voices? He no longer fights that. He no longer tries to figure it out. He could no longer tell. They all belong together. And I want you to 
take a moment, you can read from this. I'm going to read this from this old book. Or you can close your eyes and just take this in for a moment. All the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. All of them together was the streams of events, the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, he then, when he did not listen to the sorrow or laughter, when he did not bind his soul to any one particular voice and absorb it in his self, but heard them all, the whole consistent of one word, Om, perfection. This is the moment when Siddhartha awakens completely. This is the moment when Siddhartha escapes samsara. Only in that moment. And it's not forever. He has to work at it. But it's the moment when he no longer judges, no longer separates, where all the voices become one. And he realizes true oneness and listens and hears that sound of Om. We've seen this before. I split it up a little bit more. The three half curves, which is our waking state, our, our state, our, the world that we live in, is split up into waking, sleeping, and dreaming. Maya, the illusion, remember, is that veil that's a, that we have a hard time to lift sometimes. And then the diamond is Brahman or as in this book, he refers to it as Atman, the higher self. So in that moment when he experiences the flow of together, nothing is bound anymore, no separation, all the voices, the thousands of voices are one to him, that's when he fully lifts Maya. That's how this symbol has come about. That's very Eastern philosophy, how this all works. Remember a couple of times in the text, he would say his wound cannot blossom or his wound does not blossom. Have you ever wondered why Hermann Hesse wrote it in this way? Not only does he write now his wound now blossomed, his wound blossomed, his suffering was shining, his self had flown into the oneness. His suffering is not gone but his suffering is blossoming, it's shining, it's coming to its full potential. It's the suffering that is important for us to understand that every experience, whether it's pleasurable or painful, is part of our experience. And rather than trying to run away from those experiences, the ones we don't like, we should learn to embrace it. We should learn to let those experience blossom. And here is why it is about blossoming. It's an ancient teaching 
that's been around for a thousand years. Who knows what kind of flower this is? Lotus flowers. How many, how many petals does a lotus flower have? A thousand petals. A thousand voices. Right? First stage of enlightenment in traditional Hindu and Buddhist practices, the lotus flower that sits in our crown chakra, one petal starts to spin. That's when we have these beautiful experiences, you know, watching a sunset, having a runner's high, playing an instrument and just getting lost. It's when one of these petals starts to spin. Siddhartha, all the petals started to spin because he is completely flowing with the river, with the universe, no resistance. No attachment. There's a couple of representations you can see. The lotus flower is often depicted on the crown chakra. The crown chakra connects us to the spiritual world. We are all connected through the crown chakra in spirit and through the base chakra, the bottom chakra, in the physical world. That's how we're all connected, cyclically connected. We cannot help but be connected, even if we avoid each other. We're still connected. And the thousand voices in the thousand petals of the lotus flower are ultimately what is helping us to wake up fully. Finally, Vasudeva says, I am done. I've been waiting for this hour. I've been waiting for you to get it. I've been waiting for you to allow the suffering of losing your son to become as much part of yourself as anything that you enjoy in your life. I've been waiting for you to hear the thousand voices and no longer judge which voices are important and which are not. I've been waiting for you to look at me and to see you. Now it's enough. Farewell, Bob, farewell, River, farewell, Siddhartha. And he goes into the forest and disappears. Healing in Christ. You might wonder how this now connects to Christian teachings. It connects, not directly, because we don't really know if Jesus went through a similar experience or not. We don't really have a clear idea, not like Hermann Hesse is depicting Siddhartha's awakening. We don't. But we can look at healing. In fact, there's 27 healings. Traditionally, here are just some examples of how these healings look like. And here are 26 of them. That's, I know it's small, so you have to go to the sermon notes or, uh, and, and look at them. There's 26 healings that traditionally are recognized that are done by Jesus Christ. Hemorrhage, hemorrhaging woman, raising Lazarus, raising Jairus' daughter, and so on. 26 of them in Christian scriptures. But I believe they're missing one very important one. 
the seventh to 27th healing. Jesus heals himself and the world at his crucifixion and through his resurrection. This doesn't mean that only through Jesus Christ we can do stuff. This means that ultimate healing for us is through letting go, through crucifixion, through resurrection. It's what we learn in the beautiful Easter story. That's how it's connecting to Siddhartha, is letting go of what Siddhartha knew who he was and being willing to move into what is next for him. Just as Jesus allows the crucifixion to happen, probably had the power to stop it if he really wanted to, and then resurrect out of that experience. And I'm not going to bother you too much with Charles Fillmore at this point, so I'll let you read this in the sermon notes, but it just explains how in unity we see crucifixion about the letting go of attachment and resurrection about bringing forth the new, which is all connected to this chapter. So the end of suffering ultimately is about realizing that beautiful sound of Om in Eastern tradition. It's about realizing oneness, where East and West connect through unity, and it's about healing. We have the power to heal, and we have the power to heal at all times. All we need to do is to allow those thousand voices to sing and to allow them to all come together. And let's take that into our meditation for today. invite you to close your eyes if that's comfortable or just lower your gaze and follow the sounds Allowing your mind, your heart, your body, your soul to relax. Imagine the river. The river by which Siddhartha sat for many years. Imagine that same river flowing within you from the base of your chakra up to the crown into this world, into this universe of spirit. And listen carefully, deeply to the voices within you. the voices of yourself, your friends, your families, those you know and especially those you don't.
Allow that river to flow as you listen. And listen deeply. Become a deep listener just like Siddhartha. Breathe into that river. Breathe into yourself. Imagine the lotus flower to sit on top of your head, on your crown chakra. And imagine for the moment that one of these petals is starting to spin. A sign of you awakening to the truth of who and what you are. Imagine all those people that you've ever met in your life. Those who have helped you, those who have challenged you. And hear those voices, the voices of pain, the voices of suffering, and the voices of joy, the voices of glee and grace, all of it coming together. And breathe once again into these words. And all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. All of them together was the stream of events, the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or laughter, when he did not bind his soul to any one particular voice and absorb it in his self, but heard them all, the whole, the unity, then the great song of a thousand voices, consistent of one word, Om, perfection. So take these words into yourself. Allow that word, that sound of Om to sit with you. Together. Oh. One more time. 
Perfection. And so it is. Amen. <laughs>